For three people, the end is bad. The word of the kingdom is either taken from them, uh, scorched after what looked like a good start, or strangled. For the last person, the word of God puts down roots, grows strong and tall, and, importantly, multiplies, bears fruit, as the word of the kingdom increases in that person's life and probably in the lives of people around them as well. Uh, There's an obvious application to this. Be fertile ground for the word of God. Be the fourth person. Receive God's word. Perceive its truth. Persevere with faith. Cling to Jesus as your saviour and your king and daily obey God's commands. There's probably a New Year's resolution somewhere in there. Something to do with reading your Bible, perhaps, God's word. Uh, But the application of this parable is only one part of its purpose. Even then, the application of the parable uh, is more by implication than by straightforward command. Uh, notice Jesus doesn't say, therefore be uh, the good soil. Uh, that's, that's there by implication. Naturally, that's the one you want to be out of any. But the only thing that Jesus gives as a command explicitly is the word hear. Hear the parable. So let me lay out some of the functions of this parable, and this will be the structure of this morning's sermon. Uh, the function of this parable, parable is, is at least threefold. There's filtration, uh, there's illustration, and then implication or application by implication so filtration first Uh, Jesus uses this parable as a means of filtration as in this parable and the parables that he told alongside it are a deliberate attempt to separate two sets of people Uh, there are those people who the parable is not for it's about them but it's not for them And they are represented by the first three unfruitful soils. And there are those people who the parable is for, uh, represented by the fruitful soil. Uh, This Christmas I did a couple of batches of homemade ginger beer. Uh, I mixed sugar, ginger and yeast and a few other things into a bucket of water. A lot of sugar in a bucket of water. Uh, And a day later I poured the mix into plastic bottles and I immediately started a second brew after, uh, after I'd emptied that first bucket. But by the time I came to pour the second brew into bottles, the bottles from the first batch had developed a sediment on the bottom. Maybe if you've brewed anything at home before, you, you'll know what I'm talking about. There was a sediment, sediment at the bottom. Now, that doesn't bother me. I knew it was going to be there. I've done this once before in my life. I knew it was there. Uh, It's just part of the process. It's even part of the romance, perhaps, of having something uh, made from scratch at home. But for the second batch, I decided to pour uh, it into bottles through a cloth, uh, a filtration cloth, so that I could take out some of the chewier bits of sediment. That's filtration. It's an exercise in separation, where some bits are removed and the remainder, what's left, has been purified. And Jesus tells us, that, tells us that part of the reason he speaks in parables is to do exactly that. According to verse 2, Jesus addresses his teaching to a great crowd. That's the unfiltered bucket. Uh, the parables 
are a filtration cloth, designed in a sense to make his teaching deliberately more obscure and challenging, like the weave of the cloth. It's a challenge that the, that the ginger beer has to pass through. So that what he has left is a more pure product. By verse 10, it is just his disciples that are left. Twelve filtered bottles, even if they are still a little cloudy. Uh, In verse 10, we hear the disciples saying to Jesus, why do you speak to them in parables? And Jesus' answer from verse 11 is, in essence, well, the parables are a barrier, a deliberate barrier. They leave the unrefined on one side of the weave, even as they improve the quality of those who are already pure. Or to use a different metaphor, the the parables are like a small barrier. If you're half inclined, you'll invest the effort it takes to step over the barrier and continue on the course. But if your heart's not in it, well, then you won't make the effort. And the barrier has revealed only what was always there your true heart, but it's amplified it somewhat. Uh, It's amplified complacency on the one hand or a true heart that's that's willing to make the effort on the other hand. Now, I will say in all this, uh, this by the way, this is only one function of the parable, this filtration uh, sort of barrier uh, that is created. Um, This isn't a hugely popular way, by the way, of thinking of the parables, Uh, or even a popular way of thinking about Jesus' message. We prefer to think of Jesus' message in terms, uh, not of barriers, but in terms of invitation, an open invitation, Uh, which it is, by the way, an open invitation. Uh, But we often do see Jesus doing things designed to thin the crowds. Not because he wants to make the crowd smaller, but because he wants to make the crowd purer. At times he tells people who have approached him to leave him. Jesus preaches of a coming kingdom while he embodies weakness and poverty. Remember, this is the king who at his birth was laid in a manger. This is the king whose glory was when he was lifted up bleeding and naked on display. His strength and courage look very easily like weakness to those who want to detract from him. His wisdom looks like foolishness to those who are perishing, deliberately. This is his strategy. However, this kind of filtration exercise, uh, as true as it is, As accurate a uh, representation, even this is how Jesus describes his own efforts in the parables. This filtration exercise is only one aspect of the parable's purpose. The truth is, I mean, I, I hope this has been your experience. Once the parable is explained, like a lot of the parables, the parable of the sower uh, is a really helpful illustration, isn't it? Uh, It makes things more clear than obscure. It's it's not a high barrier to get over. It actually makes understanding easier rather than harder because of the power of illustration, uh, which is a really important aspect of this parable along with all the others. Uh, So it's there to illustrate. Jesus says in verse 12 that in, in terms of knowledge of the kingdom of heaven, the parables exist so that to the one who has, more will be given and he will have abundance. But from the one who has not, 
even what he has will be taken away. So if you can just step over the small initial barrier of the parable, uh, or to use the filtration image, if you can just dodge the coarse weave of the filtration cloth, then the parable has an awful lot of explanatory power through illustration, through word pictures. So what does the parable illustrate? What is it that it illustrates? Well, Jesus explains it in terms of the kingdom. Uh, He says uh, in verse... Uh, Which verse is it? Uh, Verse 19. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom, uh, that's the seed. Uh, He explains the seed of the story is the word of the kingdom and the four different soils are four different people who will be exposed to that word. And only one person produces fruit and all the others will fail. And what you will notice about each of the three people who fail to produce God's fruit is that although... They are held responsible for their own failure. They're not without guilt. There are external influences acting against each of them. So in verse 19, uh, it is the evil one, the devil, uh, represented by the bird that snatches the word away from the path before it can do anything at all. So the person who is the first soil, the, the path, they're held responsible for the fact that they don't remember anymore what was told to them. But there is this external influence as well. The devil himself is acting against them. In verse 21, uh, it says that it is tribulation and persecution, things acting from outside that apply the scorching pressure to the fragile seedling uh, that withers among the rocks. And in verse 22, the external pressure is the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. These are the things that strangle and choke God's word among the weeds. And to one extent or another, each of these things demonstrate a vitally important truth about God's kingdom. And that is this. Uh, And and I'm uh, sort of, I'm talking a bit about the parable, but but here at this point I'm stepping back to talk about our theme, the kingdom of God. Uh, Because this uh, parable illustrates something really important about the theme of the kingdom of God. And that is this, that God's kingdom is a kingdom at war. It is a kingdom at war with a competing kingdom. Uh, And God is a king who is at war with a competing king or ruler. Now, that's not to say that these kingdoms are created equal. It's not like a yin and yang image where there's this perfect balance between good and evil. That couldn't be further from the truth. Good will prevail. God's kingdom is eternal. It is has already been and will be eternally victorious over the kingdom of the devil. Uh, but there is, uh, there is a war, there is a battle for hearts and for people. Now this is part of the subversive or unexpected nature of Jesus' message about the kingdom all along. Uh, We know uh, from some of the things we've looked at over the past few weeks that John the Baptist introduced Jesus' message as, uh, he he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus came in to say exactly those same words, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But we actually learn as, as as time goes on that Jesus probably meant slightly different things from what John meant when he said it. So he's using the same language, he's using the language of the day, but he's meaning something different. He's, he's subverting or, or uh, teaching something unexpected about the language and ideas of the day. And that's this. The first century Jews w- were very familiar with the idea that there were two competing reigns or kingdoms. 
It's just that they tended to localise it politically or geographically. So the ideal and the promise of a coming kingdom was that there would be a Jewish monarch from the line of David on a throne in Jerusalem. And the enemy is any other king who attacks or pretends on that throne. So in the current context of the time of Jesus, this is Caesar of Rome. It was uh, in the eyes of the people, in the minds of the people, uh, the battle of two kingdoms was people versus people. Uh, Politics versus politics, Jew versus Gentile, Davidic king versus pagan king. Two earthly, worldly, political, geographical kingdoms. But when Jesus pictures the kingdom of God as his message, he never once emphasises or promises to be the kind of king who will take up his throne in Jerusalem. His kingdom, he says, is not of this world. He will take up his throne in heaven. The ruler, who is his enemy, is the prince of this world, the devil. So it's not, you know, side by side, kingdom of Israel versus any other pagan kingdom, but actually it's more like this, kingdom of heaven versus kingdom of this world. Kingdom of God versus kingdom of the devil. And we see this competition existing especially uh, in Soils 1 and 3. To come back to the parable now, we, we actually see it quite explicitly in Soils 1 and 3. So the seed on the path, soil number 1, is snatched away by, uh, Jesus says, the evil one. Now when Mark uh, explains the same parable, in place of using the language of the evil one, he says, Satan. When Luke explains this parable, instead of saying the evil one or Satan, he says the devil. But all three are the same thing. The evil one, Satan, the devil. He is the ruler of this world. He is the one who is out to undermine and attack the kingdom of God. He is trying to steal people for his own reign, for his own kingdom. And then the the third soil, I said, it's quite explicit in there as well. It says the seed among the thorns is choked by the cares of this world. Uh, And it also says the deceitfulness of riches. Now, three times in the Gospel of John, Jesus calls the devil the ruler of this world. And when Jesus is tempted by the devil in the wilderness, the devil shows him all the kingdoms of the world and offers them to Jesus as a temptation uh, to serve the devil. Uh, And he makes this offer as if the devil holds some true spiritual authority on earth. Uh, In his letter to the Corinthians, Paul even refers to the devil as as not just the king or ruler of this world, but even the God of this world. Uh, Not that the devil is, like I said, yin and yang, equal to God, uh, dark versus light, evil versus good, but he is, in the minds of the world, their God, not equal to the one true God. Uh, And just as one of the dangers of the choked seed uh, that's in soil number three is the deceitfulness of riches, we are told repeatedly that the devil's key characteristic is deception. He's out to get us. He's out to sow lies where God sows truth. And then even in soil number two, where I I feel it's less explicitly uh, posing this, you know, kingdom versus kingdom picture, it's still there. Uh, where the external influences are tribulation and persecution. These are the things that cause the seed without root to wither. 
tribulation and persecution, well, it's not hard, is it, to see the devil's hand in these things, trying to undermine the faith uh, and attack the faith of God's chosen ones. Now, perhaps if you've sat in this church for any decent period over the last six years, uh, you'll be sitting here now thinking, Rod doesn't talk about the devil very much. I don't know if anyone's noticed that. It's true, I don't. And as I've been exploring Jesus' teaching on the kingdom of God, particularly as it exists in battle against the kingdom of the devil, I've had to reflect on why this dynamic isn't more represented in my language. Uh, And so I'm going to offer for you a few of my own reflections. Part of it is deliberately strategic. Part of it. Uh, Here's my hunch. I have a job to interpret not only the word of God, but also... Uh, the people and the culture in which uh, we operate. Uh, and so I choose to emphasise some things more than others deliberately and strategically. So for me, I perceive, and I can be wrong, but I perceive that an overemphasis on the mysterious, otherworldly spiritual forces can sometimes have the effect of distracting us from the battleground. The devil is equal to the world. Uh, The spiritual battle in the Bible really looks and feels very much like worldly temptation. So our daily battleground is more against actual temptation and the flesh than against an unseen, shadowy figure beyond the veil. So, uh, So my language reflects this strategy of mine. Because by talking about the world and its temptations more than the devil and his schemes, I'm talking about a seen enemy that I hope you can perceive at work in your own life, even though that is one and the same enemy. So I'm not 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 talking about the devil when I talk about temptations in the world. I'm just not using the language of the devil and his minions and his schemes. So that's one of my reflections, deliberate strategy. My other reflection is that I am in danger of error because I run the risk of producing the opposite error, uh, not only in my own life but also in the life of the people I'm here to teach. In my concern about giving us a visible battle to fight, I've run the risk of undercooking a key specific teaching of Christ. I may have even given the wrong view that fighting temptation is more about willpower and effort than faith in our unseen helper who fights our unseen enemy on our behalf. So in the name of honesty and self-reflection, I have flagged in the past with this church frequently my personal inclination and sometimes my error error, uh, to focus on the concrete and the seen more than the mysterious or the spooky or the unseen. Maybe it's that uh, by background and trade I'm a scientist Uh, Maybe uh, I could say I've been jaded by a few too many kooky Christians. But an unspiritual or a pragmatic Christian isn't much of a Christian either. And so I offer you these reflections of mine. I hope they're helpful for you to, to perhaps even reflect on your own inclinations and your own potential errors. Implication or application. Remember, this is application by implication, because Jesus doesn't specifically say do this or do that uh, coming out of this passage, but I, but I think uh, the implications are relatively clear. 
Uh, Jesus does fall just short of saying, now therefore do this. Uh, but there's application by implication. The illustration of the first three unproductive soils gives us warnings, for example. Uh, you're reading it wrong if you don't read a warning into those first three soils. The first soil, uh, where it's taken away, and yes, the, uh, the external enemy is there whipping the word away when he can. He's the birds uh, pecking at it uh, and removing uh, the word of God from our hearts before it can even put down root, before we can even open to receive it. But the warning there is against forgetfulness. It's against uh, James, uh, is it James, puts it like this. He, he talks about the person who hears the word of God uh, and doesn't put it into practice is like a person who looks in the mirror and walks away forgetting what they look like. Or the person who, who's done this, looked at their watch and gone, oh, hang on, what's the time again? Uh, that kind of person. There is a warning here against forgetfulness. Uh, perhaps it means not just rocking up on Sunday, uh, but setting some time aside later in the day or later in the week to reread the passage from Sunday, lest you forget what it is God is teaching you. There is a warning implicit in there about forgetfulness. Uh, in the second soil, there is a warning against having a faith that is shallow. Because it says in there that there's, uh, there's persecutions and tribulations. Friends, that's a given. It's going to happen. Uh, you had them last year, you're going to have them this year as well. But there is also identified uh, in that illustration of that second soil uh, a problem uh, internally, and that is that the root has not gone deep. There is no root. There is a warning against having a faith that is shallow, against having a faith that is fair weather, uh, that is only present when things are good and, and, and falls away when things are tested. Part of what that means, by the way, isn't just being strong when things are hard. Part of what that means is being diligent when things are easy. Uh, putting down roots when your mind has space and your heart has energy uh, to receive God's word and grow in faith. It's not about waiting for the tribulation but being prepared for it and getting your doctrine and your beliefs straight. Uh, the third soil has a warning in there about being distracted by the world. Yes, there's external forces. There's uh, the temptation of riches, the deceitfulness of riches. There's deception from the devil acting against us, but there is in there a warning to not fall for it, to not be distracted uh, by the temptations of this world. The illustration of the final soil uh, gives us application by implication as well. It's not a warning, it's an invitation. Uh, the, inv the implication is that we should seek and strive to be fertile ground for the word of God. Uh, you can't always plant seed in any old soil and expect a good outcome. Soil sometimes needs to be worked. Farmers expend fuel to sow and harvest seed, but they also burn fuel in preparing and tilling the ground when there's no seed to be found. In your own garden, perhaps, you need appropriate uh, nutrients, which you might get by adding fertiliser or compost, uh, moisture, uh, you need to monitor drainage according to the plants you want to grow. There's work to be done on the soil itself. So how can we hear Jesus' illustration of fertile soils? How can we hear this and long to be productive and be sure to prepare our hearts appropriately? So a few thoughts, very quickly. Regular feeding. 
regular feeding on God's Word, uh, the constant drip of Bible, uh, the message of the kingdom. I would say weekly at least in church. Twice weekly, better if you gather in a home group. Better still, daily and privately. Uh, But I'm not climbing a ladder to heighten spirituality here because I think the foundation uh, is still the public gathering and reading and exposure to God's Word. That is the bedrock. And that private stuff is good, but it's a bonus. Most of all, do not forsake meeting together. And so I say this as well, good company. Some plants have symbiotic relationships. You plant one uh, with another and and they help each other grow. Uh, And the Christian life is like that as well. Make sure you keep company with Christians. Don't uh, don't give up company with non-Christians. We can't remove ourselves from the world. We're not uh, commanded to do that. Uh, We're told it's impossible to do that. But keep company with Christians. There have been seasons in my life where I have grown in my faith more through osmosis by having good company uh, than by any other deliberate attempts to grow in my faith that I've made. Well, praise God for that. That's not the best bedrock. That's not the thing that we should always presume upon. But it is so healthy to have quality Christian people around you. These people will spur you on and encourage you and teach you just by their being so much so often and another thought to prepare the soil is prayer this is tilling the soil this is opening your heart to God it's part of what we do when we read Psalm 119 we're saying words when we read Psalm 119 together that maybe you haven't thought about ahead of time maybe encourage you to think um, maybe even say things that uh, you wouldn't necessarily say under your own steam that you know oh I love God's word in, in quite the same poetic language uh, that, that, that the psalmist says uh, but it's about trying to get your heart in the right place to hear God's word, preparing to receive it uh, and to open your heart to God. And finally, I would say this, it's about practice. It's about obeying God's word. Uh, And what is obedience if it isn't turning? Remember, when John introduced Jesus, he said, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When Jesus came to speak, he said, repent, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repentance is the act of turning. Turning away from some things and turning towards other things. And we see the word turn. It's it's a different word grammatically, but it's the same principle uh, within our passage in verse 15 of Matthew chapter 13. It talks about the stubborn people. It says, This people's heart has grown dull. Their ears can barely hear. Their eyes have closed lest they should see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. We must repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repentance isn't primarily sorrow for sin, although it is that too. It is a turning from the world and the devil's reign and his command over your life, and it is turning to the Lord and the word that he teaches which in fact is one and the same. Uh, In the book of James again, uh, uh, James, who is the brother of Jesus, says, draw near to God, turn to God, and resist the devil, 
but one and the same action. Uh, we are going to pray uh, against the enemy uh, and, uh, and, and pray that our hearts will be uh, the good soil, ready to hear God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, Father, we thank you for your truth. Father, we thank you uh, for the gift of faith. Uh, that just as Jesus said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Uh, just as he says, uh, blessed, are, blessed are you who hear and understand. Blessed are you who see and truly see. Uh, we thank you for the blessing uh, from above that you have given us eyes and ears and hearts that are able to perceive and receive your word. And we pray that we will cultivate that soil, that we will work it diligently and faithfully. Father, we, thank you. we pray that you will give us eyes to see uh, the battleground uh, and the competing kingdoms. We pray that you will help us uh, to renounce the devil and all his ways and to flee him by pursuing you and obeying your word. Please forgive us for our sins. Uh, please forgive us for our blindness and our deafness and our hardness of heart uh, and make us, in the power of your spirit, always more like you. Amen.